0: Welcome to the podcast, brought to you by our sponsor, the MBTA's Perk Program. Massachusetts charter schools have long been touted as the best charter schools in the country. That's not only a premise of a new book by Kara Candell; it's the title. Her book, "The Fight for the Best Charter Public Schools in the Nation," is probably the most in-depth look at the history of charter schools here in Massachusetts. It comes at a particularly interesting and some might even say perilous time for charter schools here. And we will dig into all that and more with Kara Kandel, a senior fellow at the Pioneer Institute, who is our guest today on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. So the best charter schools in the country, just to sort of jump off from from your book's title, what's what's the basis for that?
1: Yeah, it's um, it's quite a brave title, I guess. You have to be able to defend it. Um, the basis for that is that we now have, as I'm sure you know, um, several very high quality, meaning apples to apples, studies about charter schools. So we have, um, we're lucky here in Massachusetts not only that our state department gathers a lot of data that uh, researchers can use, but that we have the ability to compare students who enter charter schools, meaning they won the charter school lottery, to those who entered the lottery but did not win seats in charter schools. And um, several of those studies now show that Massachusetts charter schools not only close achievement gaps at very high rates, but they do it for, um, for students who are uh, generally low-income, minority, and even now we have recent studies showing that they do it for students with special educational needs. Um, one study in particular out of Stanford, the Center for Research on Educational Outcomes, um, did cite that Boston charter schools in particular, close achievement gaps at really unprecedented rates, so add years of learning um, to, um, to a students' education in reading and math, and, and that's where the title comes from.
0: And just sort of help us by sort of backing up the story, uh, you know, in some ways to the start of charter schools here, and, and I know, you know, it's often pointed out that charter schools were really a fairly small part of the very sweeping 1993 education reform law that uh, reset things for K-12 education in Massachusetts in, in many ways, including the introduction of new standards and accountability. That often gets kind of reduced to the shorthand of MCAS testing. Uh, you know, we also changed the funding for, for our schools dramatically. But uh, within all of that was this provision to allow a new kind of, of school uh, to open here uh, you know at the same time that this was happening in, in, in other states as well what what was sort of the impetus for that and how and how did people sort of view uh, the potential of charter schools back at that time?
1: Yeah that's uh, that's a great question so, Charter schools were, as I point out in the book, just as you say, one small part of this larger education reform. And I think at the time, um, though a handful of legislators and advocates um, thought that charter schools could bring more innovation, more diversity, certainly enhance parent choice uh, in Massachusetts, um, I don't think at the time they realized how popular this reform would become nor how controversial it would become. It was apparent, though, um, after the passage of ed reform, just after a couple years, we We started with a very conservative cap on the number of charter public schools that could exist, um, a cap of 25 schools. And it was apparent just within two to three years that parent demand for these new, potentially, because at the time we didn't know if they would be high-performing or innovative, but potentially high-performing and innovative options, um, parents really wanted them. And it was that parent demand that drove, I think, educational entrepreneurs and others to establish these schools. And over time, they came to prove themselves not only as but very high-performing, I think in part some of the ways in which they prove themselves had to do with the way we authorize schools, meaning when they didn't prove themselves, when they didn't perform well. uh, Massachusetts has been very serious about about closing charter schools. Um, So yeah, one small part of education reform, um, controversial in that Teachers unions in particular, once it became clear that these schools were very popular, um, started to voice their dislike for these schools, which by and large chose not to unionize. Remember, charter schools can unionize. I am the proud board chair of a unionized charter school network Is that right? here what, in Massachusetts, uh, the city on a hill, charter uh-huh. school network. Um, and our teachers have chosen to unionize. It's their it's their right. It's their choice. We support that. But, but by and large, charters have chosen not to do that. And so um, one can speculate as to why the unions have traditionally opposed charters, I think, one reason has to do with membership. but um, And that's why they've become controversial, because of the opposition. But in the beginning, I think it was really unclear how popular and how controversial they would be.
0: And and I mean, you mentioned you sort of hit on the authorization of charters and the sort of stringent standards and willingness to shut down charters that aren't performing. Just talk a little bit in general about the success that they've had, the studies that have, have shown this, uh, and, and sort of how you see... Uh, uh, the sort of ingredients or what's, you know, been the sort of, you know, people talk about the secret sauce that is kind of made made for uh, such a successful uh, set of charter schools here in Massachusetts.
1: Yeah, well, so I think you can talk about the secret sauce in a couple of ways. And certainly one of the things that I, I most enjoy about my work is that I get to spend time in a number of charter schools, seeing the good work that, that the teachers there do and that the school leaders do. And that's that's definitely a secret sauce that is much harder, much more difficult to capture. As a former teacher, I can tell you that sometimes it's hard to even explain why it is you're doing a good job, although there are many teachers out there that did far better than I Um what we talk about in the book is the policies that, that have become what I would say the secret sauce for Massachusetts. And, and one of those things is that in comparison to other states, I think we have done in the Commonwealth a really excellent job of guarding charter school autonomy and, as I already said, holding charter schools accountable. And on that first note, what I mean is that the law was set up so that we have we have a single authorizer, which is the state. And I think that um, although many charter advocates would say that's not the ideal authorizer, and I'm, I'm happy to talk more about that if you'd like, the state, no matter um, whether it existed under the Executive Office of Education, as it did in the beginning, or where it does now under the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, has really guaranteed charters the autonomies that they are due under law. Uh, in many states, districts, school districts, are charter school authorizers, and study after study shows that objectively, that usually doesn't make for good results for charter schools. So I think some of the secret sauce has been down to um, to policy. And in, in general as well, in addition to giving charters these autonomies saying you don't have to unionize, you can lengthen the school day, you can uh, lengthen the school year, you can innovate in terms of curriculum and pedagogy. Um, they've also Shied away from regulating charter schools too much. Mm-hmm. I would argue that we've seen an increase in regulation over time, but nothing like what we see in our in our district schools. And I think even districts leaders would tell you, superintendents and and even school principals would tell you that sometimes it's regulations that bog district schools down more than anything. Many would love the freedom that charter schools enjoy.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, so I want to sort of jump, uh, you know, jump ahead from sort of talking about the sort of genesis of charters and their their early days here and kind of go and and then from there maybe we can sort of back up but let's go to the kind of the elephant in the room which is we're talking about charter schools here and and the argument which you make in the book and I've certainly read a lot about and I think it's a pretty sound argument about about ours being really the sort of the 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 gold standard for charter school sectors in the country in terms of performance and what uh, what a difference it's made for some of the kids who've attended these. But when you look at kind of where they sit politically and, and the support for them, uh, you know, it obviously, the, the, the conversation goes back to the big ballot question we had, which was just almost exactly two years ago in 2016, when there was an effort to expand the cap on charter schools. Um, something that obviously the proponents thought uh, going into it, you know, that they could they could win public support for. And uh, as I think most people who are kind of listeners to the podcast will be aware, uh, they got their heads handed to them. I mean, it was a it was kind of a, 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 a sort of front to back shellacking, really, and something that uh, you know a lot of people have said really set the charter school movement sort of back on its heels. Uh, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, both sort of how you think it came to such a decisive vote against it and, and also just sort of help us dissect a little. We've got the benefit of hindsight now, two years of hindsight. That's always two thousand and twenty. But what was the thinking going into that and, 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 and how did proponents sort of miscalculate so badly?
1: Yeah, it, it's quite a paradox that we have some of the most successful charter schools in the entire country, and they're the most, they're very, very in demand, over 26,000 individual students on charter school wait lists throughout the Commonwealth, yet um, we have very divisive charter politics, and certainly uh, the proponents to lift the cap were, were absolutely trounced at the ballot
0: box. Um, it was basically the, two to one, I mean, just it, to yeah, refresh huge. people's memory on the and margin. I, and I
1: think that people were um, were surprised by that, which in hindsight is a little bit sort of, well, how could we be surprised? Um, I trace it in the book to, to a Couple things, and I'll start with the with the first. Going back all the way to 2010, and in 2010 we saw the last um, substantial raise of the charter school cap. It had been raised modestly over time since Ed reform, but. Um, what that lift of the charter cap did? It was called the smart cap at the time. I would argue, in hindsight, it, it wasn't incredibly smart. It lifted, um, it lifted the charter school cap in the lowest ten percent of performing districts, and it said that. And this is the key: it said that any new charter school seats would have to go to proven providers or schools um, and organizations that had a good track record of student achievement.
0: Which seems like a pretty reasonable seems great. premise, right? Right.
1: It seems reasonable because I mean, number one, you're getting more access in the in the highest demand communities, and number two you're providing a guarantee to parents and others that hey uh, these are these are probably going to be really good schools um, in hindsight, however, I think that did a couple of things that impacted the ballot and and the first is that it, It branded charter schools in a way that they they were already well on their way to branding themselves in in this way. But it it further sort of pushed them over the edge and sort of saying these schools are for one type of community, for one type of kid. And and I would put that it also says these schools are supposed to be an escape valve from failing districts, right? So if you –
0: So so that kind of sort of – Further exacerbate Absolutely. this kind of polarization, this tension. And, so if and, you've got this you know,
1: anti-charter bias, or charters are hurting districts, or charters are draining money from districts, to further say we're better than districts, we're going to we're going to save you from the district, that really exacerbates tensions. And again, un, unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the other thing that the proven provider clause did, which really had an impact on parents, at least in in my research, I heard some very interesting things in this vein, um, is it said by saying that only proven providers can repulate, you sort of Suck the innovation out of out of charter schooling, meaning that um, you're not going to get anything new necessarily. I mean, proven providers can innovate within their own context, but you're not going to get some untested, really great idea that's going to come in and parents are going to say, oh, I really want that.
0: Right. Outside of the box isn't uh, yeah. really the thing that was going to be happening, right?
1: Exactly. And in the course of my research, um, you know, it was, in and some of it's not even included in the book, but just during question two, I would be at parties with friends who, of course, I'm the charter school lady, so tell me which way to <laughs> vote, right? And in some of the interesting things I heard were, it was this idea that charters were a way of doing school. They were a brand of schooling. They were sit up straight, tuck your shirt in, right? Nobody's talking about the Montessori charter school or the expeditionary learning charter school. Um, it was this brand that, that really aligned with sort of a no excuses way of doing schooling rather than a structure that allows for all of these diverse and innovative schools. And so I think that that we, we exacerbated that in 2010. But to jump ahead to the ballot, um, I don't think that the, the loss at the ballot box can all be blamed on 2010, because I don't think that your average consumer of education in the Commonwealth is probably very aware of what the law says with regard to charter schools. Um, I think that, listen, the ballot box, in hindsight, we had attempted to lift the cap in the legislature. It had gone nowhere. Uh, there were attempts in the courts that not, pre and post-2016 had been struck down. And I think that charter advocates in the face of great demand were, were sort of ready to do anything. Um, many said this shouldn't have gone to the ballot box. Right. And others, there wasn't
0: really, even within the charter community, unanimity consensus. that this was the way to go, right? And I
1: think that that was also part of the death knell because there wasn't a uniform sort of you know group of people standing up and, and A, defining what charter schools are and what they can be, and B, saying in a unified voice, like, and and we need this, right? So it was confusing to most people. And I think, you know, for a long time, people talked about suburban voters making choices for urban kids and urban families who are the major consumers of charter schools. Um, and I think that there's some truth in that, in that many suburban voters faced with even, disin- I would call, disingenuous information about the impact of charter schools on um, on districts, um, but faced with that information in without an ability to discern fact from fiction, most voters are going to say, I would rather not harm anybody. I'm not going to take that risk. Therefore, I will vote no. Um, That still doesn't address the fact that even urban voters who tend to be the consumers of charter schooling also defeated the cap. Um, I'll I'll recount for you a story that I've, I've recounted a couple times, and that is um, post-2016, I was in a, I was in an Uber, and um, the guy asked me, you know, what it is I do for a living, and I told him. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I've, I voted no on that. And I said, oh, okay, and sorry to hear that. <laughs> and um, and then I said, so where do your kids go to school? And he said, oh, well, they go to a charter school in Malden.
0: Really? <laughs> so,
1: yeah, wow. so I kind of had to it, – it's an interesting sort of psychology to dissect. But I think that a lot of what it went into this were these sort of quiet perceptions about charter schools that, that shaped the way people were – we're going to vote in addition to just, let's face it, a, a really poorly run ballot initiative right. and I mean, a well-organized, well-run opposition.
0: Yeah, I mean, as people have said, there was no real kind of on-the-ground pro side to this. The the opponents were really organized. I mean, they had sort of the army of the teachers' unions that were the main Funders and sort of the, the backbone of the opposition, but they were really able to branch out and get school committees on board and, and, and sort of spread their message really at the, at the grassroots level. And the complaint was that the proponents basically just barraged the airwaves with, with TV ads. And that the campaign was really, you know, I, not, we're not going to get into all the details, it was an outside group. was based in New York that came here that really was driving it. It wasn't, again, being driven by the Charter School Association in the state or or others here. So uh, I guess, you know, Again, yeah in hindsight it, there there was a, there were a lot there was a lot not to recommend I guess you'd say
1: Exactly and perception matters so perception really really matters
0: Right It was also you know as people have pointed out we have this long history of charter schools here we'd never you know everything related to charter schools had been done legislatively starting with the Ed Reform Act in 93 any efforts to sort of tweak the law with regard to charter schools happened in the legislature and um, you know it had never been brought uh, to voters uh to take stock of. I mean, I keep being, uh, thinking about it when we're now, uh, you know, uh, we've all been sort of faced with this ballot question around nurse staffing, and I sort of see a parallel that these are complicated issues with a lot of moving parts around a sector of our society that everyone touches. I mean, we all sort of have some connection to schooling, we all have connection to healthcare, but few of us really are, are intimately knowledgeable about and familiar with all the intricacies around funding and things like that, and suddenly voters are sort of now being asked to be the arbiters of something that's very complicated. Um,
1: yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think there's huge parallels between the two.
0: We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. Time is money. Commuting can be a pain. Save time and money and make your commute a little easier with PERC, the new transit pass program from the T. With Perk. You get a monthly pass that automatically renews and get savings on your taxes. Ask your employer how they can sign you up. For more info, go to perk.mbta.com. That's perk, with a q.mbta.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kara Kandel, author of The Fight for the Best Charter Schools in the Nation. So the ballot question sort of goes down to defeat, and, um, uh, you know, it doesn't sort of end the, the, the charter school uh, sector here, and there's still room in the cap, uh, in the existing cap in, in a few places, to grow. But uh, but but there's still no doubt that we're sort of in this sort of strange place where where we have both, uh, you know, this sort of acclaimed sector, and yet we have a, a you know, we've kind of had the public weigh in with a sort of a resounding, voice of uh, of uh, I don't know if they know confidence, but they've really sort of put the brakes on the idea. That this, uh, that this thing that appears to be very successful is going to see a lot of growth. So where, where does that leave us, or where do you, where do you think the, the charter school sector should go from here, both from your research and you know, somebody who, as you say, is, is involved with, with a, a set of, of the schools here in the state?
1: Yeah, well, I think that there are a couple places to go, and I think that I think that number one, though, what we what we need to realize in order to even justify why people should care about this issue, and and I like to, to go back actually to your first question, and that is, you know, um, how do we know that charter schools are so so great? Well, we know that this set of schools, not only in the Commonwealth but also in Boston in particular, close achievement gaps at unprecedented rates, and I would say that what I hope folks here in Massachusetts would realize is that. In my opinion, we, we spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back for high NAEP scores and MCAS scores that are rising. And all these things are good. I think ed reform has made uh, a good difference in, in many ways. But um, we're also a very high social capital commonwealth. We have a lot of very strong district schools, which is great. Um, but these overall great test scores mask huge disparities in the commonwealth, especially between our low-income children of color, students with special needs, and and their wealthier white counterparts, to put it bluntly. And the fact of the matter is, we know that Charter schools are closing these gaps. We know that, in, in part, because of our approach to holding s- charter schools accountable, that they're really working for many families, and we also know that there's demand. So I would say that that's reason number one for the legislature to try and figure out how it is we get more of these high-performing schools. Now, there there are other couple of things. I think that any push to lift, or as I would like to say, abolish the cap, is going to have to be done legislatively, as you point out. It would probably have to be part of a larger package for education reform. But I think that there are a couple things that charter advocates also need to recognize. Um, and you you rightly point out that there are communities here that are not the cap. And I think that a lot of would-be charter operators or entrepreneurs need to ask themselves questions about what kind of innovations can I bring even to very very high-performing suburban communities. Now, there are places at the That are not high performing, and we can talk about that too. But we need to break out of this mentality that charter schools are just for a particular type of community. And if we are able to do that, then 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 voters across the Commonwealth, although it shouldn't go to a vote, but citizens across the Commonwealth will have a much better understanding of what these schools are about, what they do, the diversity, the innovation that they they can truly bring uh, to schooling across the Commonwealth. The other thing I think we need to realize is that. Repealing the proven provider clause itself is going to be a really important part of Of reinvigorating innovation in the sector. We've seen, because of our charter school cap, you know, I would argue that in the beginning the cap was probably a good thing for Massachusetts because it gave us this very conservative approach to authorizing, trying to pick strong schools, close them down when they don't work. Um, But over time, one of the things the cap has done is seen entrepreneurial thinking go elsewhere because people can't open new charter schools where they want to. And that's not a detriment only to the charter school sector. That's just a detriment to schools, period, Um, because charter schools and district schools should be sharing good ideas. Um, A lot of people like to say best practices at terms falling out of favor, but should be sharing back and forth the things that they do. I would acknowledge that I don't think uh, charter schools have done the job that they could um, of of sharing those good ideas and best practices over time. Um, And in part, that's because they don't have sort of a a real clear avenue for doing that. Um, One of the things that I recommend in the book is that if we had a more autonomous charter school authorizer, so again, I think that the board has done an excellent job, but it's responsible for authorizing charter schools, and it's also responsible for all public schools in the Commonwealth. So it can't truly act as an advocate for charter schools. It can't say, you know, it would be great to go open a charter school in this community that you might not necessarily think of, because it's not supposed to advocate for charter schools in that way. I think that such an independent body might also have the space and the scope to be able to actually... be an avenue for sharing good things and best practices between charters and districts. The other thing I think we have to do before it becomes at all tenable to reset the conversation about charter schools and the Commonwealth and even think about lifting the cap is head-on address this issue, um, which is mainly a myth, that charter schools uh, impact district funding. And so in the book, we right. go into great detail. I and mean,
0: that was the sort of central that's, issue that's, in the ballot question, That was the central right? issue
1: in the ballot question. And the fact of the matter is, is it's very difficult for your average citizen to understand. I mean, it's difficult enough to understand how your local school is funded, let alone a charter school, right? And one of the great things about our funding formula in comparison to other states in this country is that... Money for, for charter schools really does follow the child here. So in, um, in the book, we go into great detail of all the different circumstances under which uh, charter schools could potentially drain money from district schools. And, and the conclusion we draw is that in the vast majority of cases, they don't. There are a few cases in which they do. It should be remedied. Um, and, and basically, the funding formula is so non-transparent, it's so opaque, that it's very difficult even for charter school leaders to understand. So I think that if the legislature should could begin by addressing the funding formula in general and then move on to addressing the charter school funding formula, making it very transparent, ensuring that reimbursements for charter schools um, that the districts receive when they lose students to charter schools are actually funded every year, that we take the wind out of the sails of that argument, so to speak, and we can get back to having a real conversation about what these schools have to offer a diverse array of kids in the Commonwealth.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's also, I mean, I'm struck by uh, your comments, and I, and I read them in the book, about, um, about one thing that charters might do to uh, sort of, you know, help reestablish some some uh, foundation for support or, or increase support is to branch out from being simply seen as this kind of safety valve in, in low-performing urban districts. But I wonder if that's the idea of them looking to suburban areas and other places um, to establish a foothold and sort of demonstrate to other populations what they have to offer. Is there a sort of, is that also a little bit of a double-edged sword in that, um, uh, you know, it, it could raise in some of those communities some of these same issues around funding? You know, I was struck during the ballot campaign that there were suburban areas where people suddenly were alarmed at the idea that they may lose funding from charters. And I remember, you know, the charter saying, well, you know, there's not really likely to ever be a charter school in Hingham or places like that where, which was again, one of the communities I remember writing about whose school committee took a vote to oppose this. Mm -hmm. Um, but you're sort of suggesting that, you know, places, I don't know if Hingham is one, but you know, places like that, that there might be something a charter school could offer even in places that have pretty high performing district schools, but that it could be an alternative to it. And I guess I just wonder if, uh, whatever, benefit or gain that might bring to the, scar- the charter school movement could be offset by, by, uh, by kind of concerns that would now be spread to other communities about what happens with funding.
1: Yeah, I, I think it definitely could be, but I I'd, I guess I offered the recommendation not just in the service of the charter school movement, but in the service of education in the Commonwealth, right? So I, for example, I live in Brookline, Massachusetts. We've we've got excellent public schools. Excellent people clamoring to get into Brookline for our schools. Right. Um, so say somebody wanted to open a charter school in Brookline, it would have to be a truly innovative option. It would really have to give parents something different that they don't feel they can get at Brookline High or, or Brookline. You know, elementary schools, Mm -hmm. and to be clear, they're already getting a lot from those schools. So I think that you know, charter operators shouldn't go in with this notion that we're somehow going to save the charter school movement by opening schools where um, where where demand might not currently exist. Instead, I'd say the opposite. They have to come up with really great ideas that make parents in those communities. Demand charter schools, and then the conversation shifts, and then parents will realize that actually this is a public school education, that it's not districts or schools that have a monopoly on funding. Funding follows the kid, funding follows the child, and then um, and and then they would. Be okay with um, money going to that charter school. But again, it has to be an option that parents really want. It has to be different. It has to be distinct. And it has to be innovative. And and the beauty of the law here in Massachusetts is that we set the stage. We allow charter schools to do it. But it's time we need operators to step up with new, innovative, diverse ideas and be able to do that in communities that aren't at the cap.
0: And in terms of uh, sort of getting a conversation going again, do you feel like we're – it doesn't really feel like we're uh – we're about to see that happen. I mean, uh, it 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 it's in, frankly kind of hard to imagine right now. The legislature sort of digging in and and taking up some of this, you know, in light of the the ballot question. How do you? I mean, where do you? How do you sort of see an opening uh, uh, being created for this conversation to even even be started in any way?
1: Well, I think that that any new attempt to talk about the cap has to be truly bipartisan so there are <laughs> there, there is I have to believe that there's some bipartisan minded legislators out there and I think that those who live in communities where there is really high demand right so in Boston we, st- we have over 10,000 individual students on wait lists in Boston and um, and I think it's going to be really important for the representatives of communities like that to, think about why it is those wait lists are so high. Um, it's it's going to have to be um, an effort that really thinks about what's best for kids and what's best for families. And, and the other part of this conversation, I think, is that if we can start to understand lessons learned from the charter sector in terms of maybe the question is not charter or district. Maybe part of the question is how do we give districts some more charter-like autonomies to help them realize some of the performance gains that charter schools have realized over time, even as, by the way, they take in higher numbers of students with special needs, higher numbers of English language learners, those students who opponents liked to claim until we had the research to dispute it, um, you know, weren't being served or couldn't be served for some reason. I think that if we start to see more of a, a two-way street between charters and districts and more of a willingness, um, you know, for example, if a if a, a traditional public school is failing in this commonwealth we wait a very long time before intervening you know you see generations of kids fall through the cracks in the charter school context that wouldn't be the case now if we went in and started intervening in schools or following up with schools much earlier and giving them charter-like flexibilities much earlier as we saw in places like Lawrence you could see more legislators realize that these charter-like flexibilities and also the ac- the accountability to which we the standards to which we hold charters will be good for all schools and And, you know, eventually the dream, right, would be to see just sort of a blurring of the lines. Um, I started off my career as an international researcher doing international comparative research. And it's always fascinating to me that we even have this word that somehow differentiates these different kinds of public schools, you know, some that have more autonomy, others that don't. In um, plenty of other countries, it's just schools have these autonomies, and they're also held to this higher standard of accountability. So I think we need to get past the language, and that's only going to happen with a bipartisan approach and a focus on learning what's best from each sector and applying it.
0: Great. Well, I want to uh, thank you so much for coming in to talk. Thanks for having me. So this has been another installment of the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. I want to thank Kara Kandel for coming in and talking about her new book, The Fight for the Best Charter Public Schools in the Nation. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.